Welcome to Inside the Hut. I'm your host, Brooke Pollock, founder of Hut Capital. Inside the Hut is a podcast that talks with leading blockchain venture capital investors to dive deep into their firm, strategy, and approach to a complex space at the forefront of innovation. You can find this and other episodes on Spotify and other podcast players or on our website at www.hutcapital.com. The content of each episode of Inside the Hut is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any Hut Capital fund. Please note that Hut Capital and its affiliates may also maintain or be considering investments in or related to the companies, funds, assets, or strategies discussed in the podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments and related disclosures, please see www.hutcapital.com. Thank you for joining for this episode of Inside the Hut. I'm excited to have with us today Steve McKeon, co-founder and managing partner of Collab Plus Currency, a venture capital firm focused at the intersection of culture, consumer, and crypto. Folks may know also Steve is one of the few fellow Oregonians alongside myself in the crypto venture capital world. So especially excited to have Steve join us from that perspective today. So welcome, Steve. Thanks for having me, Brooke. So to get started, would love just to hear about your background, your introduction to yourself, and really how you got to be where you are today. Sure. So, I mean, I guess going all the way back, I've sort of always been fascinated by tech. Started my career at the height of the tech boom, basically Web 1.0. I graduated like 1999, 2000, and immediately moved to Silicon Valley, joined a startup, and then watched Silicon Valley melt down from the inside, which was a fascinating experience and super educational. Went off and did a bunch of other stuff, eventually went back to grad school, became a professor, started here at University of Oregon in 2011. And as soon as I started, I co-founded a software startup with some students called Skyward. And so this was nothing to do with crypto. This was 2012, I guess, is when we started that company. And it was commercial drone software. And we grew that up. We raised some venture funding. We eventually sold it to Verizon. And at that point, I'd run the journey. I'd caught the bug again around emerging technology. And so it was about 2015 when I left the Skyward board as we were prepping for sale. And I said, what's next? And I had kind of become known as the finance professor that understood tech, right? Sort of like the fintech finance professor. And I thought to myself, I can't really be that guy without being able to explain Bitcoin to someone. And so in 2015, I just decided, like I had no aspirations of working in crypto or anything like that. My aspiration was being able to have an intelligent conversation about Bitcoin. And so I just started going down the rabbit hole, as they say. And so I was reading everything I could. Or no, remember, there's a lot less content in 2015 than there is now. So I was looking around. I was cold emailing people. I cold emailed Brian Armstrong at Coinbase. And I said, hey, how about you give me some data and I can write a research paper? I mean, I was trying to figure out how to blend this in with my academic role at the university. And Coinbase got back to me. They said, we're not going to give you any data. So no surprise there. But they said, there is somebody you should meet. And he's the only person that's been thinking through rigorous valuation models the way you have. And his name is Chris Berniski, and he's at ARC with Kathy Wood. And they're sort of the first buy-side shop to take direct Bitcoin exposure. 
on Wall Street. And so this was an innovation ETF. I was connected with Chris. Chris was writing a book. I started reading some of his work and doing some calls with them. And then I would say that's when I really went down the rabbit hole. It was kind of like late 2016, early 2017. Eventually went to Token Summit in May of 2017. I remember it because it was a really pivotal moment because it was really at that conference, basically on the first day by the lunch break, I was like, I need to spend all my time thinking and working on this sector. And obviously, it had been introduced to Ethereum and smart contracts and so much more than Bitcoin at that point. And so, yeah, started teaching it at the university. I think my first class was the 2017 academic year. Eventually, an old friend of mine from Collaborative Fund reached out to me and he said, hey, we've been seeing crypto deals. Would you help us look at these things? They were kind of known as a sharing economy investor. They had done Lyft and TaskRabbit and Quora and Reddit and all these peer-to-peer platforms, but didn't sort of have like a deep bench around the tech stack around crypto. And so we started investing out of their main fund, did that for a couple of years. And in 2018, we decided to launch a dedicated crypto fund called Collab Currency. So the collab comes from Collaborative Fund, which we then spun out as a separate entity about a year later. So I'll just pause there. That was sort of like the birth of Collab Currency. Okay, wonderful. Are you still a professor these days? I am technically still on the faculty. I've been on leave now for a couple of years. Basically, when we spun the vehicle out, It's funny because Craig, I remember in 2018, he was like, hey, these crypto investments are really interesting, the ones we've been doing out of the main fund, but like we really should start a separate vehicle around this and you should run it. And I said, well, Craig, like I just got tenure. Like I can't move to New York. This is a New York-based fund. I said, I can't move to New York and run this fund. And he said, no, stay in Eugene, stay at the university, maybe leave all the other side things you're doing and just focus on the professor role, and then maybe this fund with all of your consulting hours. And so initially, I was kind of doing both. I was doing the fund and staying as a full-time professor for probably two years, like 2018 through 2020. And then when we spun it out in 2020, and it was really like my baby at that point, it just became obvious that it was like impossible to do both successfully. There was just sort of like two more than full-time jobs. And so I just went to the department head and I said, look, I didn't really intend for this, but this is kind of what's happened and I really need to go pursue this fund for a while. And so they put me on leave. uh, And so I've been on leave ever since. I won't be able to stay on leave forever, but that's the current status. Got it. Yeah, I'm sure the students were very disappointed. So today, you're managing partner of Cloud Plus Currency. Can you give some background on the firm and history and strategy? Sure. So when we started this thing in 2018... There were not that many crypto funds. I mean, there were some of the OGs like Blockchain Capital and Pantera. And then Chris had left ARC and started Placeholder with Joel and Brad. So some people who were spinning out of USV. And there just weren't that many funds. And so when we started Collab Currency, we decided we're going to have a strictly crypto mandate, but we will do anything within crypto. Like crypto itself was such an odd niche at that point in terms of like having an entire fund focused on that one thing that we didn't really need to specialize within crypto. We were sort of generalists within crypto because crypto itself was so niche. And then over time, the space continued to grow. 
more and more funds got launched, like eventually like A16Z Crypto and Paradigm and these really large funds started emerging. And the other thing is at the end of fund one, we did three deals that I remember very specifically. We did art blocks. So we led the very first round for art blocks. We did a very early round for Sky Mavis, which is the parent of Axie Infinity, the gaming platform, and we did Super Rare. And after those three deals, we started to realize that there was kind of this side of crypto around what we call consumer, which was really like untapped. There were no funds specializing in it. Obviously, like the things that were very popular were things like DeFi and infrastructure, the layer ones, the layer twos, things like this. Nobody was really focusing on consumer. And we just started building a brand around this other side of crypto, like the side that's going to touch music and art and culture and gaming and sort of like the thing that's going to, in our thesis, sort of bring on the masses eventually. That includes wallet technology. We still did a lot of infrastructure, but we kind of started focusing on infrastructure that was going to facilitate consumer adoption. And so in fund two, we started leaning in to that strategy. And then by fund three, we were really just known as a consumer fund, sort of investing at this intersection of consumer and Web3. And so virtually everything we've done in fund three has been consumer or infrastructure sort of supporting consumer. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. We've seen something very similar with increase in focus over time where a few years ago, the industry was small enough that you could effectively cover everything. And it certainly isn't the case today. And we've seen significant increase in specialization by funds over time as a result. So it makes a ton of sense. How large is the team today? So we're nine people. That's a couple back office people. One guy that focuses on research. And then we've got five on the investment team, including myself and my partner, Derek. Okay, wonderful. So to dig into your thesis a bit more, so if I go to your website, I'm going to quote this verbatim, we back early stage projects building the next generation of culture and consumer technology. So can you kind of just speak to a little more of what that means? So as I mentioned, we did these three deals, people started sending us like anything that looked like consumer just landed in our inbox, right? Because again, there was sort of nobody focusing on this side of it. And so people started saying, oh, Collab kind of understands this consumer side. And so they would send stuff to us to kind of get our take on it. And the more we did that, we started thinking through like just more holistically. If you look back across all the generations of technology, what has produced the largest winners, right? So if you look at the largest companies in the economy today, things like Apple and Meta and Netflix and Amazon and Google, they obviously have very different business models, but the through line was that they all captured consumer attention, right? So Apple captures it with hardware, Google captures it with various web-based products, which they then monetize with advertising. Meta is social networking, Netflix is entertainment. The product suites are very different. But the through line is that they all capture consumer attention. And so we said, all right, now we have this new generation of technology with blockchains and crypto and Web3. And like, why would this be any different? Our thesis is the largest outcomes eventually, when it's all said and done, are going to be projects that capture consumer attention. And so that's really where we focus. And so 
What are the things that capture consumer attention? Well, they're things like culture. So things like art and music and gaming. And crypto is very interesting as an asset class because most asset classes are sort of invented by institutions, right? Whereas like crypto is one that really retail led the way from the beginning. And it's really like the institutions that are playing catch up. It's maybe even more prone to producing very large outcomes as a consumer technology, even relative to prior generations of tech. And so when we say we're backing the next generation of culture and consumer technology, another way to phrase that would be we're focusing on things that capture consumer attention or infrastructure that supports projects that will capture consumer attention. It is like, as my partner Derek says, like attention is the scarce resource. And that's what we spend a lot of our time thinking about. Makes a lot of sense. If I think about the overlap of consumer and crypto, probably the main category that comes to mind offhand is NFTs. Is that a major category for you guys as well? It is. I mean, we've never referred to ourselves as an NFT fund. We do purchase some direct NFTs, but for the most part, we invest in platforms. So first of all, like, what is an NFT? We just think of an NFT as a file format. A lot of times when people refer to NFTs, they're referring to PFPs or generative art or something like this. We think of it much more broadly. We think NFTs are a file format for bringing a unique object on-chain. It's basically a wrapper for a digital object. And so when you frame it that way, you can see that the space is going to be quite broad. Like certainly the early use cases that have taken off are art is one for sure, right? Because it solved such an obvious problem. If you believe digital art is art, well, then there was a real issue in the sense that digital artists had no way to prove provenance the way virtually every other physical media artist could. It was hard to say this is the original because every digital copy looked identical to the next digital copy. So as soon as you could wrap those things in an NFT, and now you could create some sort of provenance and property rights around a digital file... It was an immediate unlock. And so like if you look at some of the most famous digital artists, whether it's Tyler Hobbs or Beeple or others, it's not like they just started making art when crypto came around. Like they'd been making art for years, decades in some cases. And it was really just that NFTs unlocked an ability to monetize, an ability to create provenance and create scarcity and ownership records around the digital objects that they've already been creating for many, many years. So many of these artists had enormous followings. People were already enamored with what they were doing. But this was a technology that now allowed them to sort of like take it to a different place because of the property rights associated with it. So that is an example of an early use case that took off. I mean, gaming was another one around Axie Infinity. Those characters, the Axies are NFTs. But NFTs are going to be so much more broad than art and gaming items. I mean, I do think both of those are going to be enormous categories. But again, if you just think about it as the ability to take something unique and put it on chain. So again, I'm a finance professor. I often think in terms of financial contracting. The truth is most financial contracts are unique. There's actually not very many fungible things in the world. Like stocks and bonds are fungible. Right. But even if you look at a share of stock, that's really just a slice of a non fungible thing, which is the company. 
right? Like they've taken the ownership of the company, sliced it up into lots of pieces to create sort of a fungible asset. But the truth is the vast majority of financial contracts are non-fungible. Like every insurance policy is unique. Every employment contract is unique. Every mortgage is unique. So when you start thinking about value flows moving on chain and assets moving on chain, the truth is most of these things are going to be NFTs. I mean, our thesis is that 99% of all crypto assets are going to be NFTs someday because that's the way the real world works today is that most things are non-fungible. And, and so the NFT wrapper is just going to be a broadly applicable file format for all of those things to come on chain. Okay, that's really interesting. And I think in a lot of people's mind, they feel like there's not a lot of people really using crypto. So the idea of consumer crypto would almost be like a misnomer in a certain way. Where are you seeing most traction within this market? Yeah, so there's always this debate about how much infrastructure needs to be built before you get a viable app layer, right? Because the way most consumers are going to interact with things is via apps. And so you've certainly seen financial-related consumer products. So these would be lending markets like Aave and Compound. They would be trading venues like Uniswap already doing billions or trillions of dollars of volume. Stable coins clearly have product market fit. Trillions of dollars of economic activity was settled in in stable coins. I mean, in a sense, many of those are consumer transactions and consumer products. I would say we don't focus as much on the DeFi side of consumer. We're closer to the culture side of consumer. And I would say the things that have taken off there, certainly art, right? So art blocks has done two billion dollars in gmv that's predominantly all consumer activity i would say another platform that you've seen just very recently kind of take off is friendtech so friendtech for those of you that aren't familiar with it is basically you could think of it as a gated chat room sort of a product so it was very easy for people to sign up they could go on they could connect their twitter and all of a sudden this crypto product was able to kind of leverage the social graph from a web two product, which was Twitter or X. And then all of a sudden, like everything was spun up for you. So you had your own token, you had your own chat room. There was a marketplace where these keys could be bought and sold that gave you access to these private chat rooms. And then a whole bunch of interesting activity started flourishing, like very specifically themed chat rooms where somebody was giving dating advice or somebody was posting cat pictures or adult content creators. There was sort of like all different flavors of chat rooms that started evolving. Again, this thing is only like a couple months old. So it remains to be seen whether this is kind of like he's going to have staying power. But in terms of the launch of a consumer product, because It's interesting, like almost everything in crypto has some financial angle, right? So in the case of Frentech, if you had a room and you were producing content, you got a slice of the trading fees as people bought and sold the keys to your room. So there's like clearly a way to monetize. And if you were a user, you could buy keys and you can sort of speculate that like, oh, this content producer is really good. I think more people are going to want these keys. I think the value of these keys are going to go up. And so maybe you spend 100 or 500 or $1,000 for one of these keys, but 
people didn't put it in the consumption bucket. They didn't look at it as an expense. They actually looked at it as an investment. They looked at it as like an asset. So my access rights to this chat room are an asset. And that's an asset that I can resell. In fact, there's a marketplace specifically for those access rights. And so it changed people's willingness to spend by quite a bit, which is sort of like a fascinating evolution of the way we think about how people engage in social networking and social media. And so I think that's why we were so fascinated by it is like, there is this financial angle. But the truth is like, if you're a daily active user, you're mostly going to consume content. And I think that's what we're going to need to see more of like for this category of consumer crypto to grow and evolve is like, we're going to need more apps that have daily engagement for people going to do something that is not purely financial, right? So they're going to Frentech to consume content from the various rooms that they have access to, or they're going to Axie Infinity to play the game, not solely with financial outcomes in mind, right? So it could be other gaming platforms as well. Like, I think that's what we're going to see over this next cycle is like, we've got enough infrastructure at this point. At least this is my opinion. I mean, certainly there are still things to be built out around identity and privacy and a variety of other things, but we've got a lot of infrastructure built already. And we now need to find the killer use cases that drive daily engagement for a product that people want to engage with not solely for financialization reasons, even though financialization is probably always going to be in the background for most of the consumer crypto products, at least in the near term. Yeah, absolutely. And one category where that could be the case would be Web3 Social, where in theory, people are going in to interact with their friends or engage in some sort of social behaviors. Yeah, that would, I mean, at least from my perspective, clearly fall within that consumer crypto category. Is that a part of the market where you guys have been spending time? Definitely feels like we've been seeing more investment activity and startup activity within that category recently. Yeah, 100%. We've been spending time there actually for quite a while. But I would say it's only recently that we found a couple projects that we're excited about. And they haven't been announced yet, so I can't really go into details on them. But I will say this. We've never really believed that simply a decentralized version of, say, Twitter is interesting because Twitter has already sort of solved for a social network where you can send short messages and follow people and sort of all the normal behaviors that we think of around social media and around Twitter. Like they've kind of solved that. Like the product works, it's got many, many, many users. And it's pretty hard to dislodge those network effects. And so simply creating like a decentralized version of something that's already solved isn't really interesting to us unless it creates a new set of behaviors or unlocks some new set of features, features that people really want. And so I'd say that's kind of what we've been looking for is, you know, we've been looking at Web3 Social for I mean, I would say years at this point. And certainly we have many projects in our portfolio that are already layering social aspects on. So gallery.so is an example, right? So gallery is a place where you can create a display of all of your NFTs and what they've now layered on just over the past couple months is sort of an ability to start discussions around these objects, right? So basically it's more like a thread, where you can post something that you bought 
or you've sold or you've collected and are doing something with in this sort of like conversation that can now happen around that digital object. So that's certainly a social feature or aspect to an existing platform. But I would say we've also just started investing in things that would be considered more purely Web3 social and infrastructure that's going to support Web3 social. So excited to kind of unveil those over the coming months as they go live. Got it. Earlier, I said, for me, the first category I think of within consumer crypto is NFTs. But I think for others, it might actually be gaming, which is a major existing market. Do you see a lot of intersection between your guys' focus area and the gaming space? Yes. I mean, we definitely consider gaming to be one of the major verticals within consumer crypto. I've been participating on the board of a couple of these projects, one being Sky Mavis and Axie Infinity, another being Zebedee, which is sort of like a lightning, so lightning on top of Bitcoin focused project. And so we've seen it from a few different angles. We definitely have other games in the portfolio as well. We've got gaming infrastructure in the portfolio. If you just look at the size of the market, and I know these statistics have been beaten to death, but it bears repeating like the market for gaming is larger than the market for virtually all other media combined, right? So if you add up books, movies, magazines, I don't know what categories you might include in that statistic, but all of the other sorts of entertainment, gaming is larger, right? There's billions and billions of dollars spent just on skins. This is effectively like digital fashion within gaming environments. And so it's such a pure fit with crypto and frankly with NFTs. I mean, I think many of these objects eventually are going to be, you know, if you put hundreds and hundreds of hours into a game, it would be nice to own those objects, right? And like a lot of these markets have to kind of happen in more of a gray market to trade these digital objects or to trade these gaming accounts. A lot of that can be brought out into the light with NFTs. And so I would say we're pretty confident that a big part of the next cycle and a big part of what people consider consumer crypto is going to be gaming related, either like a pure game or some other angle that's sort of gamified, if that makes sense. So maybe you're trying to drive a certain behavior on your platform and you kind of create a game or a mini game around it to drive engagement. We're seeing more of that as well. So certainly that's going to be a big theme in the next cycle. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and I, I think recently the CEO of Roblox was on TV talking about how they're looking into potentially integrating NFTs into their platform. Like, do you think we'll see larger gaming players such as that warm to NFTs more so? I mean, I think we already have, and we're going to see more. So take like Nexon. So Nexon is one of the largest gaming companies in the world. And they famously invested in Bitcoin right on the balance sheet. The largest digital property within Nexon is a game called MapleStory. And MapleStory announced within the last year that they are integrating NFTs into the game. And again, I would say of all industries, gaming is the most familiar with the concept that a digital object can have value. Digital objects have had value within gaming environments for decades, like way before crypto, right? And so the idea that we now have a tech stack where we can put these digital objects 
and we can get composability. Objects that are on Ethereum can work with one project as well as another project, even if those projects are not related at all, right? And that's true of Solana and various ecosystems where you get this coordination mechanism for digital objects across platforms that may not even be working together integrated in any other way other than they're using the same tech stack. And that's going to become a really powerful primitive within gaming. And to your point, we've started to see some of the big corporates adopt that. And I think that's only going to accelerate. Okay. Yeah. And speaking of corporate activity, it seems like we've seen a number of large brands in particular, could be others that are looking into NFTs and running some initial projects, using NFTs to bring in consumers in different ways. Curious how you're seeing corporate activity on the NFT side and how corporates have gone about doing those projects. Yeah, I'd say virtually every consumer products company is at least experimenting with NFTs at this point. Some have embraced it more heartily than others, but I would say virtually every single one of these consumer products companies has somebody or a small team working on NFTs and thinking about how NFTs are going to be integrated. Now, there's lots of ways for a corporation to integrate NFTs, right? It could be a revenue line item, kind of the way Nike is selling digital sneakers, and maybe those sneakers can be used in the metaverse or collected, the way people collect physical sneakers. It could be strictly for loyalty, more the way Starbucks has been experimenting with the Odyssey program. It could be for redemption of physical items. And it's also like these things are not mutually exclusive. Like it could be sort of all of those things at once. That's one of the fascinating things about this file format. So I think that that said, I'm not sure corporations are going to lead the way on innovation around NFTs. I think it's probably going to be the more nimble startups that drive the kind of novel, interesting new behaviors around this file format. And then the corporations will pick up on the stuff that works and implement it rather than sort of like leading the charge on innovation. Yeah, it makes sense. I guess along those lines, when these corporates and large brands are operating within the NFT space, are they typically building things themselves or are they partnering with earlier stage startups in the NFT space? I think some of each, but the truth is they would be smart to partner, right? Because this is the amazing thing about crypto is this concept of composability, how like you can bolt a bunch of things together and it all just sort of works as long as it's all on the same chain and is interoperable. And so I think in a lot of cases, it would be smart for the larger corporations to partner with the people that have sort of been in the trenches building various features that the corporation may be able to bolt on as opposed to trying to reinvent the wheel. You and I were both at this conference in New York last week, and we heard somebody from Franklin Templeton speak. So this is not really culture. This is obviously finance, a very large financial services company. But to their credit, they've been sort of embracing and exploring crypto for some time. Like I would say they're out in the lead among the financial services company in terms of embracing crypto. They've got kind of like one of the largest products right now around tokenized treasuries. But listening to this woman speak, she was saying 
part of it is we just had to learn. Like we just had to start using this stuff so that we learned. And each time we learned something, it kind of unlocked something else. And then we'd start experimenting with that. And then we'd learn something new. And it took years basically to like experiment, learn, experiment, learn. It's sort of like a very iterative process. And I think you're going to see the same thing with a lot of the consumer products companies that are in the experimentation phase now. And some of that learning can be sped up by partnering with some of these earlier stage companies that may be able to solve a very specific problem for the corporation. Because I think everyone who's in crypto has had this experience that it's like, the first time you see it, you don't grasp all of it, right? Like you actually have to spend some time just playing with this stuff before you really kind of get it. And that process, that iterative process takes time. And so within these very large corporations that don't move super quickly, it can take actually quite a lot of time. And so anyway, to your question, you're going to definitely see some of them build some of the things in-house. But I do hope we see more collaboration with a lot of the startups that have already figured some of this stuff out. Yeah, that's interesting. Then when you do see these projects that some of these larger brands are engaging in, do you see any consistency across the infrastructure that they're building in, in terms of layer one or layer two, or kind of what they're building on top of? I mean, I think the EVM ecosystem, so that would include obviously like Ethereum main chain, as well as a bunch of layer twos like Optimism and Arbitrum, Polygon and, and others, definitely seems to be the dominant ecosystem at this point. That's just sort of the most built. I would say Solana is also something that we're seeing adoption around consumer crypto, partly because it can do certain things that can kind of only be done on Solana in terms of like really fast, really large drops for a relatively meager fee. That's something that Solana sort of specializes in or excels at, I should say. And so we recently invested in a project called Drip House, which is utilizing some of those features. I think you're going to see some gaming stuff take off on Solana. So I think one thing we've seen is that a lot of these companies have now moved past this concept of we need to build on a private chain. Like, thank God, right? It's like, it is the same thing at the advent of the internet. I mean, I'm old enough where I actually remember this, right? Is like in the mid 90s, what corporations were talking about was building an intranet. And why? Because like the internet was a scary place. Like there was all kinds of malware out there. We didn't really have very good virus protection. You would never put your credit card on the internet, for example, like in the late 90s. And then eventually, like the technologies got built out, which kind of made the public internet safer, SSL and whatnot. And then all of a sudden, it was like obvious that like you didn't want an intranet. You wanted to be on the internet. You wanted to be connected to this massive global network of information. We're seeing the same thing. Like I think there are some applications, particularly around certain financial products, that people are building on private chains. But my thesis is that those effectively all migrate to public chains over time because it's just so expensive to maintain your own little ecosystem when you could tap into this massive ecosystem with a massive network of validators and folks that are maintaining the network. It's just going to make so much more sense from an interoperability and frankly, cost standpoint 
So I guess that's one thing I would say is definitely public chains, mostly EVM and Solana. And I think that's pretty much the state of play at this point. Okay. And not to harp too much on the intersection of kind of corporate NFTs and how they're operating the space, but stepping back a bit, I mean, why do they want to do any of this in the first place? Is it as simple as, hey, we sell physical things. Oh, now we can sell digital things and we don't even need a factory to build any sort of physical good. Or is it more nuanced in terms of how they're thinking about it? So I'd say some of both, right? So first of all, let me just go back to something I said right at the beginning of the podcast, which is capturing consumer attention is front of mind for most of these companies. And if you look at what's happening to consumer attention, like what's the biggest trend we've seen around consumer attention over the last two decades? The answer is screens, right? Like consumer attention is all migrating to digital environments. Like it's been doing so for 20 years and it's like monotonically increasing. COVID through like a little bit of a blip in these charts. But basically, like every year, people on average spend more time on screens than they did the year before. And it's also monotonic in age, right? So if you look at like boomers spend like the least amount of time on screens, and then Gen X spends some more, and Gen Y millennials spend some more. And then you get all the way down to like Gen Alpha, and it's like the most digital attention of all. And so if you're a consumer products company, you have to be thinking like, all right, consumer attention is basically all moving to digital environments. How are our products going to evolve into digital environments? And as I talked about earlier with art, the way you can create a unique digital item that has some degree of provenance, some degree of ownership, some degree of property rights is with an NFT or maybe crypto broadly. And so the reason all of these companies are interested in it is because it's just sort of like the obvious evolution of where consumer products are going over the next two decades. And so I think they're trying to figure out like, look, if you're Nike, why do people buy Nikes? So one is like the form factor, right? So like you need to put something on your foot so like you can walk around But like the truth is you don't need to put a pair of Nikes on your feet. Like you could go to Walmart and buy a pair of shoes for a fraction of the cost of Nikes. So why do people choose to spend 3X, 4X, 5X the cost of simply putting something on your feet to serve like the basic function? And the reason is like it's a flex, right? It's how you want to present yourself to the world is like, I want to present myself with Nikes, with these specific pair of Nikes. I like the way they look. I like what they say about me. I like what the brand stands for. Like, we don't have to dive deeply into consumer psychology. But the point is, you're buying the Nikes because that's how you want to present yourself to the world. Well, as we move into digital environments and people are now spending more time in gaming environments and immersive environments and you know it'll be fascinating to see what happens with like the apple vision pro and whether people start spending even more time in immersive environments well it might be the case that your willingness to spend on a pair of digital nikes is equivalent or even surpasses your willingness to spend on a pair of physical nikes because It's, again, just the way you're presenting yourself to the world. You might be interacting with more people in digital environments than you are interacting with people in physical environments. 
I mean, some of us are are already there, right? Like we're spending all day on Zoom or maybe for people my kids' age, like in gaming environments and Fortnite and whatever else. And that's why we've seen so much money spent on things like skins. Skins, mind you, like may not affect gameplay at all. They're literally just how your character looks. Just like buying a pair of Nikes in the real world, this is how you present yourself, but now in a digital environment. And so I think that's why all of these corporations are interested in it is because it's just, this is where consumer products are going. Attention is moving to digital environments and consumer products are going to follow. Yeah. I mean, I see that with my own kids. I've never cared about it personally, but I see how much, I mean, it's easier when it's not their money because they're young enough for it to not be theirs, but how much they're willing to spend on digital items and skins and how much they care about how their avatar looks in a way that I just don't. So it seems to be somewhat of a generational divide from that perspective as well, which is interesting to see. Definitely generational divide, right? Because when you and I were their age, we weren't really spending that much time in digital environments. Like the games I was playing were not multiplayer. Again, I'm old, right? So I was playing like Legend of Zelda and Super Mario Brothers and like Madden football, like things of this era, right? Where it's like, it was just me playing against the game. So I didn't really have to care about sort of like how my character looked. Your kids, my kids are now participating in environments where all their friends are in there as well. So like I did care about how I presented myself. Maybe when I was a teenager, like I wanted a certain pair of shoes or like, I remember when I was a teenager, I really wanted like a Chicago Bulls starter jacket. That was like the thing everybody wanted who's my age, starter jackets. And again, it was like a flex. It's how I'm presenting myself to the world. And the equivalent behavior for our kids is in digital environments. So I would argue like it's effectively the same psychology. It's just where you're spending time has changed, right? For you and I, it was like in the real world. And for our kids, it's predominantly now in digital worlds. Yeah. And even back in the day, you know, playing Super Mario on my Game Boy, I couldn't exactly buy skins for Mario. Although looking back, it would have been really cool if I had had that option, I have to say. Totally. You could swap between like Mario and Luigi if you wanted the <laughs> green outfit. So that's about the extent of it. Yeah. I don't even remember having that many options. So within consumer crypto, kind of changing topics a bit, you see a lot of attention on regulation within this industry. Yeah, I'm curious, within your focus area, do you feel like you're more or less exposed to that risk on the consumer side of things relative to, let's say, like DeFi and things that are more financial services oriented? I mean, short answer is yes, but I think there's a lot of nuance there. So you kind of just have to think about like who regulates this thing that I'm building. So no question when you think about DeFi, you're implicating, in many cases, the SEC or the CFTC or one of these financial regulators. Why? Because they are financial services. And there's an argument about whether the platform is simply a software provider as opposed to like actually custodying or taking control of the assets. I won't dive into all of that. But when you think about a gaming item right? Like there's still room for regulation. It might be the FTC instead of the SEC, right? Because maybe it's more of a consumer product. And so if there's fraud or again, like these things, there's not bright lines, like these things all blend together. 
Like if you have an NFT and maybe it's a gaming item, but maybe there's some way where by holding the NFT, you get some participation in the profits of the gaming platform. And so they're passing back passive income. Well, it is really a consumer product. It's basically a gaming item, but because it has this other facet to it, it might now fall under some financial regulations where maybe somebody makes a claim that's security or something like that. So I'm not going to say that the stuff we invest in is immune from the regulatory pressures, but I don't think it's front and center the way some of these other categories or other verticals are. Yeah, makes sense. I imagine at least to some degree probably helps you sleep a little easier at night from that perspective. But (laughs) For sure. Like there's many risks, but regulatory risk is one that doesn't keep us up as much maybe as like somebody running a D5 fund. Yeah, makes sense. So the same way that startups build a product and they need to have something that's differentiated and unique in market, you run a venture capital firm, you need your capital to be differentiated and unique so that founders want to work with you guys and Clive Plus Currency as a firm. How do you think about differentiating your own capital and what you offer to founders? Yeah, so I guess a couple points on that topic. What makes Collab Currency different or what makes founders want to work with us and take capital from us? I'd say the first is, I would argue we were basically the first and we've aspired to be the best kind of boutique investment firm focused on consumer within the crypto sphere. And so the truth is like, we don't really lose consumer deals. I mean, like if we're interested in participating in a round for something that is consumer related, we can usually either lead it or get an allocation. And the reason is because we just built a brand around it, right? So what founders know when they work with us is that they're getting a whole team with a plethora of consumer related investments. And so we've kind of seen every corner of the landscape as it relates to consumers and consumer products, I should say. And so like everybody on our team, and we were very deliberate about this when we hired, we interviewed a ton of really smart, sharp folks that could break down the technical aspects of a layer one. Well, when you start asking them about NFT marketplaces or something that's a little more consumer oriented... It wasn't where their passion was residing. And so we ended up not hiring those people, even though they were super sharp. Everybody we've hired is an expert in the consumer realm. And so I'd say that's one of the things that founders know is that like what they're getting is a whole team with a lot of experience around crypto. We've got 120 investments now across the various funds. And so we can use some of those learnings to help out the next project that we invest in. So the second thing they're getting is that network, right? Like they're tapping into this massive network of 120 projects that we've invested in. And we often will put those folks together. So I think just yesterday, there was a project announced that had like three or four collab currency portfolio companies all collaborating on the same product because many of these things live at different parts of the stack. So they can be symbiotic. They can work together. We don't invest in direct competitors. I mean, we attempt not to. Sometimes you don't know how things evolve like years down the road. But generally speaking, 
I think by focusing kind of exclusively on consumer, we built a network that is very, very compelling for the next founder that is creating a consumer products company. And then the last thing I would say is like, I mean, especially Derek and I, the partners on the fund, we're builders. Like we each started a startup, grew a startup, sold a startup. Like we've run the full journey. We know how hard it is. We know how difficult raising capital can be. And we kind of can empathize. And the other thing is we're geeks, like we're power users of these products. I would say both of us were fascinated by the technology. And before we were ever investors, right? Like we were interested in crypto for crypto's sake. Like we loved the concept of decentralization. We loved the peer-to-peer interactions. We've got thousands and thousands of transactions on our personal wallets We're both large NFT collectors. I mean, Derek is one of the most prominent NFT collectors in the world. And so we live it, right? Like we're not investors first, we're users first, who also happen to have a fund from which we can deploy capital. And I think that to some degree makes us unique in the space. So I'd say those are the things we've heard in terms of why founders like working with us. Got it. I guess... To your point on kind of being out there doing things, I think you guys run an event in MARF every year, which I sadly haven't been to, but it looks really cool. What is that and why do you put that on? Yeah, so one of our more prominent investments is Artblocks. Artblocks is technically headquartered in Marfa. Marfa is a small town in far west Texas that is sort of like synonymous with the arts. And there's a long story about sort of like how Marfa ended up becoming kind of like an artist commune dating back to this artist named Donald Judd. We probably don't have time to go all the way down that rabbit hole. But we went to the very first Art Blocks weekend. It was 2021. Fell in love with the town and said, wow, this town really could use some more digital art exposure, right? So Art Blocks is there, but almost everything else in Marfa is traditional art. It's like everyone you meet is like a painter, a sculptor. There's Chinati Foundation, There's like, I don't know, 10 or 15 other art galleries, like traditional art. And so Derek and I personally just bought a gallery at the center of Marfa and turned it into a project called Glitch. So Glitch Gallery is focused on promoting digital art. Some of that is art blocks, but a lot of it is other artists and platforms in the space. Derek and our gallery manager, Madison, have absolutely crushed it with a project called Every 30 Days, which is where one piece of art is featured each month. And a new one releases on the first of every month. You can Google Glitch Gallery and find more information about that. But to your question, so Artblocks has continued doing this weekend. It happens every fall. It's usually kind of like September, October, November timeframe. And it's like a mecca. So the first year, I think there was like a couple hundred of us and the next year, there was like four or 500. And this most recent year, I think there was like six or 700. I mean, there is a capacity constraint in Marfa. Like there's only two hotels or three hotels and, and then a bunch of Airbnbs. So there's a limit on how many people this space can hold, unless it sort of like turns into Burning Man and everyone's out there camping and that type of thing. But yeah, that's basically the event you've probably seen on Twitter. It's like during that Art Blocks weekend, We run a series of events at Glitch Gallery. Many or most of them are featuring portfolio companies of ours. 
their panels, their nighttime events, their daytime brunches. We do some private events for various DAOs and entities. So it's amazing to sort of like have that space to utilize. And the rest of the year, it is kind of open as a gallery that you can view through the window and see these digital objects. But the big weekend of the year is Art Blocks weekend. Awesome. Sounds like a lot of fun. Look forward to checking it out one of these years. So last question, if you weren't doing venture and investing in crypto for a living, how would you make money? What would you do for a living? Yeah. I mean, you know my background. I probably would be a professor, right? So like, <laughs> I technically still am a tenured professor at the University of Oregon. My whole goal was to get tenure. Once I got tenure, I thought I was going to be a professor for the rest of my life. Never really anticipated doing something crazy like running a crypto venture fund. It's just sort of like the way things evolved, as I described earlier. So, I mean, I'm pretty sure if I wasn't doing this, I would still be on the faculty at University of Oregon, teaching the edge of financial technology and kind of where it's going and how it's going to change our lives. I mean, I was quite happy doing that. I enjoyed the research. But yeah, the fund was a compelling opportunity and ended up going down this road. Yeah, I guess we won't find you in the classroom for the time being, but if folks want to follow you online or follow your colleagues online or follow Collab Currency, what's the best way we can find you online? Yeah, I mean, collabcurrency.com is the website. Collab Currency also has a Twitter handle that's linked on the website. You can also find our Medium link there where all our research is published. I mean, we were talking a lot about corporates earlier. Like one of our investors, Karen Shen, wrote a whole article about corporate adoption of crypto that you can find there. And then I've also, of course, got a personal Twitter handle, which is just at S.B. McKeon, M-C-K-E-O-N. Wonderful. Well, this is a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining us, Steve. Thanks, Brooke. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. You can find this and other episodes on any podcast player or at our website, www.hutcapital.com.